Okay, my name is Karen Mason Miller. I'm a Zen Buddhist priest, and I'm an author. I write about spirituality and everyday life. Hi, my name is Colin Bean. My Dharma name is Jean and this is The New Constructivist, a show about right livelihood. For this episode, I spoke to Karen Mazen Miller. I know Mazen is a fellow member of the Hazy Moon Zen Center in Los Angeles. However, when we're there, we sit. So I know many of the specifics of her story from her books. I was especially struck by her book, Hand Wash Cold, Care Instructions for an Ordinary Life. She shares how she fell apart, found her way, and how it manifested in her career, her work relationships, and the work she finds before her each day. I have a feeling that millions of so-called successful professionals can relate to where she was, and many more aspire to be there. But it may not always be such a great place. I was grateful for her insight and also her craft of communication. I find these ideas extremely subtle and difficult to articulate. So apologies beforehand for my clumsiness. But she gets into how a person can turn from a deep unhappiness or even just a vague, persistent dissatisfaction towards clarity and compassion. Personally, I feel like I need to hear these things over and over in different ways and in infinite variations just because we get so lost and spun out in what passes for reality these days. Speaking of reality, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, released a report this month. I'm not a scientist, but it sounds like humans have about 12 years to change course before we end up locking into some pretty severe consequences. Extreme weather, land, and ocean conditions, food and water shortages, ultimately millions of human casualties. Most agree that reversing this will require massive, unprecedented change. And obviously, this is a big existential issue, but it's also a work issue. And we should think about how we contribute to this with the work we do every day, the work we pay for, and the products and services we buy. I have many thoughts on this, but for now, I'll just pass on this Buddhist story of the brave little parrot. Long ago, a little gray parrot lived in a green forest. She was a happy bird and loved to fly. One day, a dark storm hovered over the forest. Lightning struck, and the forest began to burn. The parrot, smelling smoke, flapped her wings and rose up. As she flew, she cried out, Fire! Fire! Run! Run to the river! Her hope was that others might escape, too. But as she flew over the now vastly burning forest, she saw that many animals were already trapped by the flames. She saw, too, that the great trees among whose branches she had often taken shelter, trees she loved, were wreathed with flame. How can a tree escape fire, she thought. Then a desperate thought came to her. She saw the one thing she could do that might save her burning world. She flew to the river, but didn't fly across it to safety. Instead, she called to the animals huddled there. Let's carry water to the fire with paw and beak and mouth and leaf cup. Let us douse the flames and save our forest. But the animals answered hopelessly. It's too late. We must stay here where it's safe. There's nothing anyone can do now. But the little parrot said, I will do what I can. She flew to the river and dipped her body and wings in the cool water. Then she flew back over the raging fire. The flames were intense. The fire was leaping high. The heat was terrible. Twisting and turning through the mad maze of fire, on she flew. When she was above the heart of the blaze, she shook her body and wings, and the few drops of water that still clung to her feathers tumbled like jewels down into the flames. They evaporated and were gone. Then the little parrot flew back to the river and did it again, and again, And again, 
and her feathers became charred, her claws cracked, her eyes danced red as coals, but still the little parrot flew bravely on. Some of the gods were drifting by high overhead in their cloud palaces. One of them happened to look down, saw the fire, and the brave little parrot. Look, he exclaimed. Now other gods and goddesses looked, and they laughed. Look at that ridiculous little bird, trying to put out a raging forest fire with a few drops of water. Can you imagine? How absurd. But that first god was moved. Transforming himself into a golden eagle, he flew down to where the little parrot was making her way with a few drops of water through the flames. The heat was intense. The great eagle could hardly stand it. In a commanding voice, he called out, Stop, little parrot. Turn back now before it's too late. Turn back and save yourself, lest you fall into the flames. But the little parrot only panted. I don't need such advice. All I need is help. And on she flew. The eagle, who was a god, beat his great wings and rose higher, away from the searing heat and choking smoke and fire. Looking down, he saw the brave little parrot flying bravely on. Looking up, he saw his fellow gods and goddesses laughing and talking, eating and drinking, while so many animals and trees suffered in the flames below. We are gods, after all, he exclaimed. We should do something. Then, deeply moved, tears fell from his eyes, fell like rain upon the fire, the forest, the plants, and the animals, and above the brave little parrot. And because those were the tears of a god, wherever they touched the flames were doused. Instantly, green grass began to grow. New buds and leaves appeared. Many animals injured by the fire were made whole and well, and the brave little parrot washed by those tears saw new feathers grow, feathers red as sunset, blue as the river, yellow as sunlight, orange as flame, green as the forest. She had become a beautiful bird. Hooray, cried the animals. Hooray for the brave little parrot in this miraculous rain. Looping and soaring in delight, the little parrot flew over the green forest. She had done all she could, and somehow... It had saved them. When I was 35, I looked up one day and realized that I hadn't had a life. Oh, I had a lot of things. I had a husband and a marriage. Between us, we had two late model cars, two high-speed careers, and a two-story house on an oak-lined street where people left their blinds open so everyone could look in and sigh. I had a great job working with talented and energetic people at my own company. I worked too hard, but I made enough money. I had a pool and even a little pool house, neither of which I ever found the time or friends to fill. I had my youth, I had my looks, and I had the self-devotion to maintain them at any cost. I had fancy jewelry and cookware without much use for either. I stood at an antiseptic distance from everything in my life, And who wouldn't? To my critical eye, everything around me needed so much improvement. My work was a problem, what with long hours and troublesome employees. Good people were hard to find. My friendships were scant because I didn't have the time or interest in people who weren't like me. Much of what was simple about life was beneath me. Not quite beneath, but certainly too trivial to mess with. I bought into the view that life was a transaction and that time was money. Since I had proven I could make a respectable living using my time in one way, I outsourced just about every other thing there was to do. I had a cleaning lady and a pool man. I had a yard man and an old guy who came around every spring and cleaned my rain gutters. We ate out. 
Our cars were hand-washed and polished by someone else. My secretary addressed my Christmas cards. I had a manicurist and a hairstylist and even more a hair colorist, none of whom I could live more than one month without. There is nothing inherently wrong with any of this. These are choices many people make, and I still make some of them. What was wrong was that I was numbingly unfulfilled. I was deeply angry and silently, sleeplessly anxious. I thought that I was working harder than anyone, and yet missing what everyone else seemed so easily to grasp, a life. So that was from your book, Hand Wash Cold. And I think that's such a powerful, a powerful piece because I think so many people are there right now. It talks about where you were as someone who is successful in today's world. And it talked about your relationship with other working people. Can you talk more about this and how you started to change from that? What I like to emphasize, because some people think that this is kind of a a deliberate change, you know, a change of mind or a, a conscious series of decisions that alters the whole landscape of your life. But that's not the way it was for me. And I'm not sure that that's how it happens. What was incumbent is that I recognized how unhappy I was. And had no idea how to find fulfillment or satisfaction. And because of that, you know, the lives that we assemble are really very fragile. (laughs) They're based on a belief system or a value system. And we build lives. uh, In particular, we, we build our work life from shared values. And as soon as I recognized that my values were corrupt or unsustainable, my life fell apart. And that's why it changed, because it was unsustainable. And so some people might call it like a spiritual awakening or some kind of recognition that you reach in your life that you can't keep going in the way that you're going. And uh, things fall apart. I mean, my marriage ended. I became less ambitious and uh, motivated and confident in my work. I started to look at my work in a different way instead of seeing, taking pride in what I was doing, seeing it kind of in another direction that perhaps I was really aiding and abetting the success of uh, certain industries that didn't have good intentions. And I, 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 I lost respect for people that I was working with. And I really had no basis. I had no grounding in spirituality. I had no, no grounding in basic goodness. <laughs> you see, the situation was, my problem was not the circumstance. I I recognized that the problem was me. And inevitably, transformation begins to occur because you can't fit the pieces together. You can't hold it together uh, any any longer. I, I I, I began to have a difficult time 
pulling off the same shtick that I had been using for, you know, nearly 20 years in my professional life. Right. And, and just for the specifics, you were in PR, is that right? And, and your client, and maybe you're talking about the clients you were serving in that business. That's what it was. I, I had a public relations firm and I worked, I had great clients. And by that definition, what I mean is that I had clients that were industry leading um, consumer goods companies and banks and real estate developers. I had a great client list, but gradually I came to realize that every client that I had was engaging in a, in a war, you know, their, their business was a war. They were competing as if it were life and death for market share. They were, they all had a kind of a, um, you know, a worldview that their product and selling more of their product was the most important thing. And I didn't have that kind of commitment. I didn't have an interest. I my, my, I couldn't pull that off any longer. I really didn't care. In fact, I not, not didn't care how much beer was sold by one of my clients. I came to realize that selling more beer was going to be killing more people. And so I just could no longer subjugate, you know, basic goodness, my values for commercial gain. I think I could totally relate to that feeling. And I think what's also interesting about your passage is the work you were doing and how you were feeling about that and how that was conventionally successful. And then also your relationship to a lot of other people you were hiring, not just in your company, but in your life to do basic life stuff, (laughs) doing your hair, doing your cleaning. Can you talk about your relationship with those people and how that changed? Yeah, it was very transactional. I mean, when I say in the passage that it was really about everything in my life was a transaction of time and money. There wasn't any other form of connection. And so naturally I felt alienated and alone, but more to the point, I really believed in the work ethic, the so-called work ethic and you know, merit system and the harder the work, you, harder you work, the farther you'll go and how much more money you, you would make. So these simple life maintenance behaviors and tasks, I relegated to someone else. They were not worth my time. So naturally, I was left feeling uh, that I didn't have a life because I wasn't actually creating a life or building a life. I was simply doing a job. That's really all that my life consisted of, was doing a job. And that was so important in terms of what I perceived its rewards to be or the stakes to be, that I I couldn't make time to do other things. And so, in a way, I was totally unschooled in what are the fundamental behaviors and activities and the rituals that create a real life, you know, like taking meals or, um, you know, caring for, 
for the things that are in your home, caring for other people. And that tells you that I also was not really caring for myself in a complete way, um, or really, really at all. All of these things that I talk about having, you know, sourced out were, were in order to maintain nothing other than my self-image. Nothing other than my self-image. How my home looked, you know, uh, what, I, what kind of car I drove, you know, how I looked and what my presentation was. You know, and none of that stuff, you know, you can only um, maintain that firewall for so long, <laughs> You know, before you're going to reach middle age and before things are going to start falling apart. And so it was, it was a complete illusion. It sounds like you started to realize this. Was this a slow process that got stronger and stronger? What were the first steps you took in trying to figure out how to make a life? Well, you know, when you're, you know, all of these things happened, not, not contemporaneously. They didn't all happen at once. But they were inevitable. I mean, it's kind of just like the laws of gravity, that things that can't stand don't stand. But my marriage ended, and, and then I had a relationship, and then I suffered loss and felt grief and depression. And those things that I had erected around me are no consolation or comfort when you're in trouble and when you're in pain, because it just... So, so they're worthless, ultimately. But, you know, initially, I didn't want to take responsibility for my situation. And so I sought all kinds of external, I blamed external causes, and I sought other kind of external remedies, like give me a pill, or let me go through therapy, or maybe something's wrong that I can't sleep, or all of these things that I tried, uh, you know, drinking. I sold my business, actually because I felt like it was part of my problem, not recognizing that I was my problem, <laughs> my own problem. And none of those things changed anything. So you just kind of run out of fixes. And, you know, they say that you have to kind of hit bottom in some way before real change can happen. And in my case, I'm not sure that it was obvious to the outside world, but it was obvious to me because I had been a very high-functioning person, and suddenly I wasn't sure I could get myself dressed. You know, I wasn't sure that I could keep myself alive, and that's the state that I was in. Then, when things, when I began to change. And that, that process or that journey ultimately led to you meeting Maizumi Roshi. Can you talk about that? Sure. You know, my only religion up to this point had been capitalism. And I really felt, like many do, that um, having a religion or a spiritual path was a crutch. And I was stronger than all of that. So I had nothing to go on. The only devotion that I had was to myself and to, uh, like I said before, my self-image. I had been shown by an acquaintance how to meditate before, and I thought it was ridiculous. 
I had no interest in it. I was in a way afraid of it. Uh, So I wrote it off as being a joke. Until I reached a point where, again, I kind of run out of other resources, other, uh, other fixes, other things to try. And so one day I just folded up a pillow, a bed pillow, and tried to meditate like I'd been shown before. It was a significant event. And I say it was significant because I wrote the date down. And I sat as best I could for three minutes. And in that time, I actually heard kids playing outside on the street where I lived. And I'd never heard that. And I heard birds, and I'd never heard the birds. You know, and it wasn't like this was, you know, rainbow and unicorns or anything. It wasn't otherworldly. It wasn't mystical, it was just real, and it wasn't taking place. It wasn't in my head. I kept doing that, you know, every day, maybe for a minute longer. And at the same time, you know, very common uh, self-criticism that most of us engage in is that we think that what we're doing is fraudulent, you know, it's kind of fake. And since I hadn't had any real instruction, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I started going to a yoga class, and these were in the days when yoga, for the most part, really was weird. <laughs> and the yoga teacher would be somebody maybe who'd been to India. But I started to maneuver toward things that I would never have done before. Uh, that didn't fit at all with who I thought I was. And then one day, I had heard that there was a Zen teacher in Los Angeles. And I, I didn't at that point believe that there could be anything Zen in Texas, which is where I was living. So I called out to this Zen center. This is when you actually had to call, use your phone. And I called out and said I was interested. Could anybody show me how to sit. And the woman on the phone said, well, we have a beginner's retreat coming up in September and you can come out for that. And I realized I could. So I said, yes, I'll come. Listening to you talk, a couple of things struck me because I, when I started meditating and to this day, I think how sometimes I'm just hearing the birds or the traffic or an airplane. And it's, almost nostalgic for when I was a kid because I feel like that was maybe the last time I heard things like that you know like oh maybe this is what it was like in the 80s and it's like no this is what it's like when you're not talking to yourself all the time so I could really relate to that that's true there's a there are teachings to that effect that we have this sentiment or we're reminiscing about a more innocent time that's part of what propels us to doing this is that we rem- we have to remember that there was a time that was not so complicated so when you did go out to los angeles or did a retreat with mizumi roshi how did that go or how did 
You talk about that some, somewhat in your book. Yeah, it was, you know, I can look back at it and I can see elements to it that I, you know, that I couldn't name at the time. But the truth is I had flung myself really into the deep end or off in the top of a hundred foot pole, as we say in Zen, into really into the unknown. And I think that's part of why it was so powerful for me. But I'll tell you superficially, it was pure agony. And I was terrified. And I really thought that I had put myself in the middle of hell. You know, I ended up in South Central or Koreatown, little neighborhood in Koreatown, you know, near downtown Los Angeles. You know, the street noise was terrific. And as you know, from sitting a retreat, there's just way too much sitting. (laughs) So it was a physical challenge. And of course, underlying it all is that although I wanted someone, quote, someone to show me how to sit, in other words, somebody, I wanted somebody who knew what they were doing to just show me what I was doing wrong. I didn't really want to meet a Zen teacher, but I had no basis on which to formulate accurate expectations. I thought there would be a big room and I could kind of lurk in the back and nobody would see me. And um, it, everything, every single one of my expectations was uh, turned upside down because, you know, in a Zen center or in a meditation hall, every seat is the front of the room. You know, you are, you can't hide. You know, that's part of the power of it is that you can't hide from yourself or anyone else. So I did actually meet the man that I was told myself I would never meet And why that scared me, I don't know, except that I do think that these elaborate costumes and images and this this elaborate persona that we construct in every aspect of our life, but to a large degree through our so-called careers, I didn't know who I was if I didn't have that costuming on. And so here I was showing up as a nobody you know, knowing nothing and not being very good. It just really hit all of those buttons, you know, that you, that, that scare you. Because up until then, you just, you think you can decide who you are and what you do and what you're good at. Then the, the costuming starts to fray, the hat slips off. Uh, the wig is crooked, you know, you just can't be fake anymore. So that's what it was like. It was like showing up someplace where you didn't want to be and you wanted to hide, but the truth is you were seen for exactly who you are, and it's a complete relief. Yeah, I think it's interesting, that experience of coming from the world where everything is transactional, and to some degree you think, oh, well, meditation or mindfulness will maybe help me feel a little better or even be more productive (laughs) or you see it as a workshop you're paying for and then you get into a world with a different set of rules and values. How do you think of those, how those two butt up against each other or the process of um, 
maybe getting what you say you wanted, but you, it was more than you expected. I just think of my own experience of, like you said, it being a relief. Like, yeah. like you kind of, you want to go there, but at some point in that journey, it feels really scary. Like, wait a minute, am I in a cult or what, is, how does this work? Or how does so money work? And we're so unaccustomed to being undefended, being unadorned, you know, even it's just our socialization mm-hmm. and we're just acculturated to, um, just like we did at the beginning, you know, give me 25 words that summarize who you are and what you do. And, you know, those are just adjectives. That's not really who you are and what you do. I also think that for me, what was pivotal is that I actually had a face-to-face encounter with my Zumi Roshi as a Zen teacher. And this is, I think, an essential thing. If we're, we spend all of our lives up to this point, up to some point, concocting a self-image, concocting a definition of who we are, which is just an idea. You know, it may be an ever-changing series of ideas about who we, quote, really are. That's both a filter and a disguise. But to meet someone who's totally present, is completely awake, and doesn't see you as anything or any particular kind, doesn't judge, and doesn't know your life story. And, and from a heart of, that's purely kind and compassionate, it's your parents don't see you that way. Your coworkers don't see you that way. You don't see yourself that way. Um, you don't think that anybody sees you that way. And for me, it was an experience of being completely seen. And I, you know, I'll tell you, it felt like love, but not the idea of love. It felt like genuine empathy and um, acceptance of who I was. I mean, he didn't ask me ever what I had to show for my life. I mean, you know, he didn't have to because when it comes to matters of the truth, you know, we only arrive at them when, to a certain degree, other things, we've dropped other things until things have fallen apart until we've experienced failure or despair or depression or whatever. We don't come to it. It's not just another, um, you know, path of uh, Mm self-improvement or self-enhancement or self-enlargement. You only come to something like this because uh, you've experienced the first, what we call the first noble truth of life, which is that you suffer. Yeah, I don't think he asked I me, mean, whatever he might have asked me. I mean, he did, I think, in the first time I meet him, ask me how I came to Zen. And I lied about that. So none of that matters. None of that really matters at all when we become honest. Can you talk about how you move forward now or how I just think of my own experience, I guess. So I'm curious of yours, of um, moving from okay, well, how do I make money? Or if I have an idea, well, what's the monetization strategy? Or moving to a world that's, it's not like the Zen teacher got a credential and then they opened a shop. It's its a whole different model, which I feel is more looking out and seeing what needs to be done and doing it and feeling your, the saying you're safely in the hands of the Buddha 
Well, first off, it's not a model. It's not a strategy. And it's not a career. And also, it's not like this active choice. Okay, I'm going to abandon this life that wasn't working for me. Initially, I didn't. I went back to work. But I went back to work in a very different way. And not because I decided to, but just through, you know, my own experience, I realized that life is not what you plan it to be. And it's not even what you, how you design it. Um, that's, that's illusion. And if we believe that, that's delusion. We're bound to fail. It just happens. So I went back to the very same place that I worked. I was no longer the owner, but I went, nonetheless, I went back to the very same office that I worked, but suddenly how I did my work was different. Instead of thinking that I had to accomplish certain things or even during the day, I just let it happen. Like, in other words, if somebody had a problem, I used to think, oh no, that's an interruption. But it's not an interruption. That's life happening. Things happen. And I just could pivot and turn to whatever it was and not have any stake in it. Like, "Uh uh-oh, this is going to disrupt my progress or this is not good. Or just to engage wholeheartedly in, in whatever happened. So suddenly, my work was not a problem. I... I was, I mean, I really needed, and I took the money. It wasn't a problem. I mean, and I would say that the mantra after all these changes is always take the money. (laughs) You know, take the money because money comes in handy. The particular circumstances of my life is that as my practice, as I became more committed to my practice, I began to take more risks. I was generally less afraid and probably happier. And I was able to do things that I would have never done before. For instance, I traveled alone to Europe and there I met a guy and we ended up having a relationship and we ended up marrying and I ended up moving to Los Angeles and not having anything at all to do with the company that I founded. That was very, very difficult. That was very difficult because suddenly I didn't have anything to hold on to in terms of who I was, you know, that definition of who I was. And I spent a long time waiting for the phone to ring, you know, or waiting for the answer to appear or, you know, just in a great deal of confusion about what I should be doing or. Is that because it was tied to your previous work or to. It was my hands that I needed. You know, I had a craft that I needed in order to do work. I didn't necessarily need to know who the client was or how much I was going to charge. I just needed to remember that I could always write and that I could always write for people and that I could always provide a service to people. And for a short time, well, actually for the longest time, I ended up, I I still had people I knew, you know, they still contacted me. They asked, they asked for things. Was I bringing home, you know, all the digits that I was bringing home before? No. But oddly enough, and I take no pride in this, I no longer needed to. I mean, my, the dynamics of my life had changed. What was essential for me is that I have few desires and that I be able to be satisfied with being something other than a workaholic. Gradually, I realized, you know, that there was a lot that needed to be done that I couldn't monetize. And I had to be okay with that. 
I am just, I'm not worth whatever I was paid before. And I don't need, in just a fundamental sense, my needs are met. What was I, what did I think I was, how much did I think I needed? You know, how much was going to be enough? This is not, like I said, it's not a plan. It's not a business plan. It's not a model. It's not one that I suggest. And it's not the one that I can sell. But it is part of our faith tradition that if we commit to the Dharma, in other words, if we commit our lives to the practice of the Dharma, the Dharma provides for us. I found that to be true. I also find that I'm a lot happier if I don't um, think I need things to be happy. Because I don't. I don't really have an answer beyond that except to have great faith in your life as it unfolds. Even though it might not look like it, opportunities arise and are presented to you. And you may not recognize them because they're nothing that you've done before. But it's very important that we say yes. Things stop when we don't say yes. And I think you, you said something in your book about coasting, about how that's an underrated practice. We often think of someone lazy on a couch, not while, while someone like maybe Elon Musk is a model of productivity. So can you talk about the value of perhaps coasting at times? Yeah, what I'm talking about is... Um... Well, it's a couple of things. We call that seeing how things go or letting things unfold. It doesn't mean becoming inert or immobilized. It means um, it's, it's an act of faith, being able to trust that things happen by themselves. We don't, they don't happen because we willed them into existence or out of, um, you know, the assertion of, of, of the self. And that's really what that's talking about. In other words, there's this feeling, and it's almost like a, um, um, you know, it's a code, or it's a creed that you go out and you have to manufacture your life. You have to make it. You have to propel it. You have to force it, you know. And I, at that time that I wrote the book, I, I, I would cringe whenever people would say, well, you're, you have to design your life, you know, you have to architect your life, because that's all based on delusion. That's all based on delusion. Life isn't something that you manufacture, you know. It's already appearing and disappearing by itself. When you view it that way, you view your life or the world as being in opposition to you. And that you have to imprint and impose your will on it. So yeah, coasting, in that case, I was talking about uh, just taking your foot off that, the accelerant. You know, we have the, uh, you know, how often is what the, what we're, the mantra that we're repeating in, to, is we have to go faster, we have to do more, we have to go farther, it's not happening fast enough, you know, win, 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 win. And that, in a way, is just a form of, aggression and causes harm if you say, our practice we say we take the backward step so that means we just linger back and watch things really carefully what's act, what are we being asked to do right now what are we being called to do right now 
And then it no longer, your life no longer becomes an expression of just your egocentrism. Um, I mean, admittedly, you brought, you brought up Elon Musk. I mean, isn't that obvious? Isn't that obvious that what's on display there? And where do you suppose that ends? I mean, I think it's been foretold. It's, it's destructive. Life is benevolent, and your life is benevolent. Your life is intelligent. It's you. I mean, what? how does this work? But it works by itself. It works by itself. There's a Zen uh, verse that says, sitting quietly doing nothing. Spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Now, don't misinterpret that as meaning you can just stay in bed all day and then everything's going to work out fine. No, it means you don't have to impose anything on it. You don't make the grass grow. You don't make the sun shine. You don't make things happen. You, your position is at the center of it all, and you see what happens and respond appropriately. Things will arise that need and call to you to take care of, and you do. You do that. And then what's the outcome? There is no outcome. It just keeps going. Right. And I I thought of that a lot when I was pregnant. I didn't have some, what you think of as spiritual or bonding moment, but I think what I'd always feel is I don't, I'm not doing anything and I'm making the most complicated, beautiful thing that has come to me by not really, by taking care of things somewhat. I had the exact same feeling. I can remember saying to myself, I'm not, this, all this is happening and I'm not doing anything. You'd think we, we would all come away from that experience filled with awe and wonder. Um, and occasionally still I am filled with awe and wonder. You know, just the human body. And then if you think beyond that, I mean, the world, how does it work? But it works. And the only time it doesn't work, the only problem is human inter- interference. Right, to make it go faster, usually. <laughs> or to extract more profit, you know, mm-hmm. to exploit it. Right, to make money off it or right. do it faster. Greed, exactly, exactly. How practice works against, I mean, we've been talking about that, of how it can exist within this, within the pressures of the other world. Right, 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 right. Well, there's not two worlds, you see. What the, the pivot, where the pivot is, is in, is in ourselves. So we're going to be swept up in all of those pressures until internally we make a pivot and we start to see and identify with the external world and not just the internal world. You see, the internal world is afraid and feels inadequate, and um, needs defending, you know, needs to, quote, get ahead and get more. And or, as you gradually move away from that as your narrative, you being this separate, small self that is not treated fairly or that needs, you know, to defend itself and, and needs an identity. I mean, and none of this is like intellectual, It just happens when you can no longer carry forward all of that luggage, all of that 
identity, all that self-image. You just can't carry it forward anymore. It's too heavy. You know, Mm -hmm. you drop it when it becomes too heavy to carry forward. Time takes care of this because, of course, when you reach a certain age, you really can't carry forward that image of who you used to be, although people try. Wise people live in a world of fools. And by the same degree, foolish people live in a world of the wise. What keeps them foolish is that they just don't see. You know, they don't see reality clearly. All the changes that I'm talking about happened by themselves in my life. I was the last to know. I was the last to know that some transformation was underway. Other people that I had lived and worked with, you know, for 25 years would say something like, we could always tell something was happening because you look different. <laughs> I'd be like, really? You know, but somehow my, my behaviors changed, my interests changed, my attitudes changed, my bearing changed perhaps, and they were able to recognize it. But this practice enables us to move fluidly through every circumstance, you see, fluidly through every circumstance, because we're not building walls about where we can and can't go who we are and who we're not. We simply respond spontaneously to whatever circumstance arises. For several years, I would still go back to Houston where I lived, you know, where I had my business because clients would ask me to come in and do certain things, you know, work on projects or do events or something. And I can remember very clearly one time I walked into a client's office on a Monday morning and I had been working with these people for 20 years. And I walked in and I looked around and I thought that something had happened, that something terrible had happened. I said to somebody when they came into the conference room where I was sitting, what happened? They said, what do you mean? I said, well, like, did somebody get some bad news or is somebody sick or hurt or what's going on? I mean, everybody looks so terrible. And... They, they said, well, it's just Monday. And, you know, then with a little more time and distance, I, I saw what was probably always obvious, but I couldn't see at the time when I was in the middle of it, which is that everybody here is suffering. Everybody here is unhappy. Yeah. Everybody here is in pain. That's what you start to see. And then, to tell you the truth, when you go someplace where people are hurting, you know how to respond. You care for them. You pay attention. You listen. You smile. You know, you keep them company. It's just kind of basic humanity that then surfaces in you because you're not, one, you're you're awake, you can see. And the second thing is you're not worried about yourself. You're not preoccupied with yourself. Then you can really see what needs, who needs help and what needs doing. And you can do it, and it takes a fraction of the time that it used to take. Right, and you're much better at it. (laughs) You are. You're much more helpful. Yeah, I think it's interesting saying that we're also fools in the world of wise ones. It's easy to think no, I don't know, magic, or I don't know the right word, because it's not really magic, but knowledge or wisdom or guidance or compassion is out there until you get more sensitive to it. And that's not just a Buddhist teacher, but it could be healers or people in the community or 
there's a lot more of that once you, but you have to stop worrying about yourself in a way and uh, try to be more sensitive, but just listen or you could start to feel it. If you, you can see it, it's, yeah. it's actually visible. But I can remember as soon as my daughter started going to preschool, I would see teachers who were supremely attentive and kind and, mm-hmm. and uh, even-minded with children. And I would just stand back, I mean, and I would sing their praise and celebrate them. I thought, you know, this is amazing. The work you do is amazing. Um, but you can see it in people in all walks of life. You can see the way people... You know, at the dry cleaners, you know, do their work or people who wash the cars who are so uh, attentive to every detail. Not long ago, I just sat with someone who had surgery in the hospital and for about a week. If you do that and you truly just sit there and watch what happens, you will come away with this astonishment at how many people just in their everyday life are saints, you know, because they walk into the sick room and they care for people and they change their sheets and they ask how they're doing and they bring them ice chips. I mean, it's nonstop. There are all of these worlds that are unseen and invisible to some of us who are just way too important to notice, you know, where this kind of work is going on, but it's really going on everywhere. And the point is that you realize that you have to be the one. You bring that into any situation you're in. You bring your own even-mindedness. You bring your own presence into any situation. That's how it gets there. That's your own healing power and capacity. You just have to bring that in. You have to bring it in to the line at Trader Joe's. Yeah, it's true. And I think you do tend to find it more in people who are not looking for bigger salaries or not looking for more attention. <laughs> They're certainly not at the top. They're not self-promoting. That's the difference. Yeah, I, guess that's- I mean, you can see sometimes there are, there may be leaders, I mean, who don't self-promote. Um, and I think great leaders are like that, but way too many Nowadays, I mean, we look for kind of like there's a cult of personality and superhero kind of uh, quality that we ascribe to business innovators that I think is very misplaced. And that does seem to be a trend. Like if somebody makes it in corporate business, then they turn to, oh, I'm going to fix education or I'm going to fix homelessness or some big problem. Again, that, that shows you how that get the size of the ego. When there's that sense of power and genius, and Mm -hmm. it's, it's largely self defined. And then they ladle on top of it, just a little bit of compassion. Like my way is going to be better and I can fix this problem and invariably their footprint is really big and clumsy and they make a mess. Yeah, we often see that. And we are in the same way that we want to have, you know, famous people be president or, you know, television celebrities be president or any of that crossover is um, disastrous. I think the true mark of greatness, and this is something that I, I only learned from Maizumi Roshi, is humility. 
you can, that's palpable. There's no mistaking greatness when it's grounded in selflessness. It's, it's really magnificent to see. And when you see that, if you can stand toe-to-toe with it, you will see this person has something that I want. This person has something that I need to be taught. And so then you just sit down and be still and quiet until you cultivate it on your own. And that means until you forget yourself, get over yourself. And that, then, then you too can finally do some good. Right. Because I think it's true that there is a lot of ego in people trying to do good. There can be, and then they don't do good. Exactly. Because what they're doing, like our teacher always reminds us, is they're doing their idea of what is good, their idea of what compassion is, their idea of what is necessary, instead of what actually is obvious and apparent. At the Hazy Moon Zen Center, where we go to, was recently had a 20-year anniversary, and the teacher here, uh, Neil Gunrochi, talked about kind of how he ran the Zen Center. It sounded like a small business in a way. It was described like it was very person to person. It's in the neighborhood. It's not really about growth or about getting a lot of people. And I think, um, you know, you could compare that to other centers where it could be expensive to go there. They are trying to get bigger and bigger audiences and packages where you could stay there and do different kinds of things. And I don't know if, if you had any thoughts about how that those kind of things also manifest. Yeah, I think that, that everybody has the capacity to get lost, mm-hmm. uh, depending upon what their, you know, what their pursuit is. And, and um, the fact is that if you actually see the way, everything you do is service, and that's not your idea of service, you can no longer carry forward any idea of success by any measure. Because if your life is the Dharma or if your life is the teaching, then that has, you have to share that. It's, a, it's compelling. It's the only thing you have to share. And you have to share it freely. On the one hand, you have to pay your bills. That's kind of how I live now. I have to pay my bills, but I can't say no. And I can't let money define what's possible or not for me. When I first met Mizumi Roshi, he said to me at the end of the retreat, people will be drawn to you. Now, that was not because of a characteristic of me. It's just the fact is people are drawn to other people who are attentive and who can listen and who are non-judgmental and you know, who are present. It's, it's an attraction. People will be drawn to you, he said, and now you have something to share. And I didn't really know what it was that he meant by I have something to share. But I can tell you that in the 20 years since, I've realized I can make up a lot of bullshit about a lot of things and be very clever. But the only thing that's really valuable to share is this practice and my practice. And even now, what I'm sharing is my practice through my presence. That's not something that ever has a price tag associated with it. Entertainment 
has a price tag associated with it. But truth does not. Now, oddly enough, somehow, we have enough. You know, we have enough people pass through. We have enough income. Somehow, it works out. And the same thing, oddly, happens in my own life. Sometimes my husband will, you know, do the taxes and say, oh, my gosh, you didn't make anything. And I say, I know. (laughs) He says, but, you know, you could charge more. And I say, I can't. I mean, and that's not because there's a law that prohibits it. It's because I personally cannot. I cannot carry forward that self-interest. And somehow things get taken care of. Somehow there's enough. It's just, it's amazing. In fact, I sometimes say I really need to apologize to my husband because he married this kind of hard charging, hard driving, this successful person. And, and, you know, now I'm, I make nothing, but somehow even in that way, you see, uh, he has fulfilled himself in some way in terms of his capacity and what he's able to do. And I have fulfilled this other aspect of who I am and what I, I do, which is a life of service and caring for both people in my family and people that I share my practice with. I don't know. The math doesn't work, but somehow the math works. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. And that I think I felt a lot of guilt about once I questioned what I was, what I used to be doing. And I don't want to do that anymore but I don't know what I want to do next. And in the meantime, I'm not (laughs) contributing. Obviously that's a luxury that I'm, I can take time to figure that out. But that is also hard if your identity is as I provide for my family or I need to be secure or, and then sometimes you think, well, if you don't need much, you also don't need to be taking in as much and sometimes the relationships around you get in a certain way where you are actually able to do something else not just keep churning on the same it's it's really not a matter of some kind of deliberate choice what happens is that you're you change then that manifests in the world that you inhabit I have to tell you, when I, was, uh, when I first moved to California and then even before I became pregnant and became a mother, so, you know, left my business behind and that identity, and I asked my parents to come out and visit. I was, you know, really the workaholic in the family. I mean, I was the doer. And so here I was, I'd been idle for a while, and, and I asked my parents to come out. And then, you know, one morning they were there and I started to make breakfast. And my father shouts down the hallway to my mother. You have to see this. He said, Karen is making eggs. You see, I had never made scrambled eggs until I was 40 years old. That was, in constructing this self-image, that was not what I, I consciously did not include that. That was nothing that I had time for that was, that was worthy, you know. And so I just didn't think twice about it. And yet later on in my life, I realized what is more important than preparing food? 
I mean, what does your life consist of? I mean, how do you sustain your life? What is more of an act of creativity, generosity, and selflessness, you know, than serving other and making scrambled eggs? So it sounds like now you do the pieces you used to outsource as being too important. <laughs> I do. I don't have the need for, I mean, I don't have any hair or not very much. So that was not a concern. That really took a big load off. And because we're so tight, locked into hair as, as self-image. Um, and I found that I could cook and that, and that cook, cooking became for me just um, this exhilarating experience of trying to figure out right now what I'm going to make right now based on what I have right now um, and brought me a great deal of fulfillment. Um, you know, food does that or serving and nourishing others really does that. And all of those things that, you know, the laundry, the cleaning, the gardening, the yard work, and that each of those is really self-nourishing and fulfilling. In a way, what they are is that's how we're caring for ourselves. How we care for the world we inhabit is how we care for ourselves. And I could no longer convince myself that somehow any harm I caused was not felt by me. It is. You know, if you create harm and perpetuate harm, and if you uh, are ignorant and don't take care, if you're selfish, if you're greedy, you know, if you're self-obsessed, all of those things end up in um, just a catastrophic sickness of the soul. Now I uh, wash the dishes. And you also mentioned the craft that you've known of writing and serving people. Can you talk about how you use those very different than when you were, when you had your own PR business? Yeah, what I used to do was write words for other people to speak and other people to say. And oddly enough, actually, I felt like I was sometimes the person standing at the back of the room throwing my voice to the dummy, the ventriloquist dummy at the top who was giving the speech or was making the statement, you know, my client. Yeah, that was how terrible I thought about them. I thought that that I had to make them sound smart, you know. And I did. I, I was a ghostwriter, and I wrote for others. And frankly, still, I would do that, and I wouldn't have any qualm about it. But at that point, I had never signed my name to anything I'd ever written. So it was just my stock and trade. It was just cash and carry. That's all I used my words to do, was to sell something. I never called myself a writer or never envisioned myself to be a writer. But after my daughter was born, I, it just kind of appeared. It just surfaced. It was just spontaneous. I have to write. And so I began to write for in my own name. And I don't, frankly, I never thought of it as being an act of service that I was going to write books that would benefit people in their lives. I was writing to resolve questions for myself. I was writing to console and comfort myself. I was writing to teach myself. And interestingly enough, that when I would take some topic and simply sit down with my hands, you know, and this craft that I'd learned and practiced for so long, and tried to write my way to a place of reconciliation, a place of peace, a place of acceptance then I'd know that that piece was finished. That's what people experience when they read it. They would themselves arrive 
at that same place that I was at, which was finally peace, finally joy, finally acceptance of things as they are. And so in that way, then, I think the books were helpful. They're certainly helpful for me to write. And if they're helpful for me to write, then they might be helpful for people to read. And you also lead retreats and have your own group. Or can you talk about that? Yeah, what happened is that at some point, people began to ask me to teach them. And when I say that, I say that really loosely, to to come where they were and, you know, do what we do here. You know, show them how to sit in the same way that I sought somebody to show me how to sit. So I would go places. This happened for several years, going to different places back east or because every place from here is back east. And then gradually a group kind of from among different locations coalesced. And eventually I decided that all I needed to do, I didn't need to give a fancy talk or make up something clever to share with people that I should just rely on the form of the practice that I've been given, what we practice here, you know, which is really old style uh, Zen practice and just take that on the road. And so there's a group that calls themselves the Dewdrop Sangha, and it's people from throughout Midwest and, and the East, and we gather at different locations and, and do retreats, and I just go and do what I've been shown how to do here. Sometimes these folks come out to the Hazy Moon. They consider themselves to be part of a larger community of practitioners which is a beautiful thing because when you realize it's not just you with your bed pillow, you know, in the spare bedroom for three minutes, you start to have a, it changes your experience and your vista, you know, your view of the role of practice in your life and, and your life. You see it yourself intimately and integrally connected to the world. Thank you for sharing your story and talking about what you do and how you got here. I know you brought a piece to read that's also relevant to work. I do want to read this because I have found that I'm very drawn to the work of Wendell Berry, who is um, actually would call himself a farmer. You know, I think he lives on a piece of property that has been in his family, you know, for generations. And he's a farmer, but also a poet and an essayist. I found that he gave a commencement address in 2007 to the graduates of Bellarmine University, which is in Louisville, Kentucky, which is where he lives. And I, and I thought this was just perfect for sharing because this is now my view and is reinforced by, by my life and my practice. So this is Wendell Berry. You must refuse to accept the common delusion that a career is an adequate context for a life. The logic of success insinuates that self-enlargement is your only responsibility and that any job, any career will be satisfying if you succeed in it. But I can tell you on the authority of much evidence that a lot of people highly successful by that logic are painfully dissatisfied. I can tell you further that you cannot live in a career and that satisfaction can come only from your life. To give satisfaction, your life will have to be lived in a family, a neighborhood, a community, 
an ecosystem, a watershed, a place, meeting your responsibilities to all those things to which you belong. Thank you, Mason. Mm-hmm. Thank you. My pleasure. Be sure to check out the episode webpage at thenewconstructivist.org for show notes, including links to Mason's website and books. Thanks for listening. Thank you.